Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham, a show at the intersection of sports, sports media, Hollywood, and hopefully life itself. I'm the executive producer and host, Ed. In this episode, we huddle with longtime sports radio host, Doug Franz. Over the years, Doug had me on his Arizona-based show, The Doug and Wolf Show, many times, and I was always impressed by his knowledge and ability to ask thoughtful questions. So when Doug launched his own podcast, Doug Franz Unplugged, and asked me to be on with him, I had one caveat, that I could include our conversation on my show. We started off focused on Doug and his career, and then pivoted to mine. I thought it might be a good way to get to know Doug, a broadcaster I like and respect very much, and get to know a bit more about me. This is Two for One with Doug Franz. Because of being an East Coast guy, I think I saw maybe one Cardinals game a year. You know, I hardly ever saw a Cardinals game. And when they called me, they asked me to come in and do a show at five in the morning with this guy named Ron Wolfley. They just said, he's a former Cardinal. And I said, okay. So it's a tryout. It's December of 06. I fly in. I get up the next morning at a hotel. I shake his hand. Boom, we're on the air. So we're on the air an hour after we met. And as we're doing the show, it's about two hours into this four-hour tryout, he mentions a play where he took a pass out of the flat as a fullback and ran over Brian Bosworth, and Mm. Bosworth is laying on the ground with an injured shoulder. And as soon as he said that, I had a horrible reaction. I said, oh, you're that guy. (laughs) He said it right on air. Meaning, I had no idea who he was until that moment because, sorry, I didn't care about the Pro Bowl. And that's the only time you would have ever seen Wolf play. So we met on air and then had a 15-year radio show together. I can't believe you just brought up that Brian Bosworth play. It was Ron who injured his shoulder. Yes, yes. It was Ron Wolfley. I remember Boz getting hurt, but I don't rem- I would never have remembered who did it. And then once he told that story on air, it just it immediately rang a bell that, oh, that's who you are. And, and I remember that play very well, but only because everybody hated Boz so bad that that play got repeated over and over and over. And you had to look it up like you had to pay attention yeah. to find out it was Ron Wolfley because everybody was more focused on Bosworth. Here's my uh, Brian Bosworth hot take. And, I, okay, and okay. I actually have another episode with a friend of mine named John Costacos. Remember those great posters in the 80s with yes. uh, like Barkley up on the backboard? Yes. Remember yes. those? Yes. That was my buddy, John Costacos and his brother wow. made those. And they did one, The Land of Boz, which is this amazing image of Bosworth in front of Seattle. And it's got, you know, the whole Wizard of Oz thing going on. First of all, that shoulder injury was devastating. He was done. Yeah. Like his shoulder yeah. was ruined. He couldn't tackle anything. But here's my hot take. He was a good pro. He could play. That is a hot take. Why do you say that? Because if you study him and watch him, he could play. I actually watched okay. the guy play. I actually saw, I was in the kingdom the night of the Bo Jackson, where he okay. goes crazy and goes 92 yeah. yards and up the tunnel. Yeah. I was there. I was at the game. That was my freshman or sophomore year at Washington. And I okay. watched him the whole game because he was the big deal. They were pretty terrible, Doug. Their defensive line got blown up a lot. <laughs> he, had, he had a lot of people in his lap. And yeah. if you go back and watch where he, quote unquote, got run over by yes. Bo Jackson, he doesn't get run over by Bo Jackson. He tr- tries to make a high tackle. Bo has already got momentum going that direction. And he actually tackles him. 
but it just Bo's got carried into the end zone because of the way he's yeah, going. Yeah, Such yeah. an overblown Bo Jackson ran over, uh, you know, uh, uh, Herschel Walker running over Bill Bates, Georgia, mm-hmm. Tennessee. That's a run over. Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson just had an angle, but no, uh, um, Brian Bosworth was a solid professional player and that shoulder injury ended his career. Yeah. He was done. Well, we're only, I'm only three years younger than you, but it's those, it's those magical three years because when you say you were a freshman in college, you know, I'm a sophomore junior in high school. So I'm not watching a ton of West coast football. Mm. I don't have the knowledge of football then that I do now. And so I, in my head, Oh my gosh, Bo Jackson ran him over because that's, you know, that's what you see. And I don't even realize that that is only a figment of, of that point in time in life of being a younger guy. And you know, Bosworth, the ego. So you're so excited to see the ego get smashed and you don't even look at it logically. And I don't think I've ever gone back and looked at that, that play in gosh, 30 it, years. Or it's so. online. You can Google it, look it up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Now do the opposite. I gave you my rundown. How did you end up as an East Coast guy at UW? <laughs> and then your first feelings of coming to Phoenix, and then end up as a as a, a SoCal guy. Uh, so I grew up uh, sort of mid Atlantic region, Northern Virginia. Uh, we spent some time in West Virginia. We had a, a house up there, which was really great. Uh, really cool place to hang out and grow up. And I, you know, played sports football, didn't start till freshman year in high school because I was just too big for youth football. I'd be okay. you know, two grades older kids. <laughs> play against. And my mom's like, no, you can wait. Um, and just really got the bug. Our high school program was great. Um, really terrific coach, good, good older players that really mentored me and helped me guys that went on and had, uh, some guys in the NFL, but um, a lot of college players came out of our high school. And uh, I also did track and field. So I threw shot put, discus, and then in the summer I threw javelin. It was not legal in our state, but I ended up making it to nationals in javelin when I was 15 years old. Wow. Uh, the Junior Olympics, and they were at Husky Stadium in Seattle, oh Washington. Gosh. So my sophomore year, between my sophomore and junior year, right when I was starting to get recruited and, and you know, was really having a pretty good track uh, career, I was really loved. Was, track's my favorite sport by far. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so I ended up in Seattle, and it was an August, beautiful August up in Seattle. Husky Stadium's right there in the lake. And that's when, you know, I was just starting to think about colleges. I was interested in the sciences, maybe getting into the healthcare field which is huge there and twist of fate came home and uh, my high school coach, who's great guy, Bruce Patrick was, you know, would always help with recruiting and he'd sit down guys who were about to get recruited and say, where do you want to go? What are you thinking about? And who don't you want to talk to? He really did a great job of, of filtering out. And so I sat down with him and I was like, you know, I was just at this place this summer up at the UW and oh, Oh, by the way, Washington had just beaten Oklahoma and Brian Bosworth in the yes. orange, in the orange bowl in 84. Yes. So they were, uh, you know, they'd been on the front page of the USA today. And, you know, I, so I knew of them um, on the football side and the stadium's amazing. I mean, it's just such yeah. a cool, yeah. it's, and that was before the second deck was built. So there was just okay. one upper deck at the time, but it's just such a 
beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, my high school guy was like, hey, is it UW? And he goes, oh, my cousin coaches right down the street from there. I'll call him. So my high school coach had a cousin who coached at Federal Way High School just down the road from Seattle, sent him a tape. And I got a call two days later uh, from a oh guy named God. Chris Tormey. Uh, who, who's a longtime friend and a great coach and uh, went on to be a head coach, but Chris Tormey recruited myself. And then another guy, Donald Jones out of Wa- out of Virginia to come to Washington. And, um, oh. and then it, it, that just was amazing. We were, it was a great program. I played for a great guy and we were also really challenged off the field. And so one of the opportunities I got very early on was doing some radio. So I actually did some radio work okay. my senior year while we were going for the national championship. We win the championship. Uh, I go to actually produce a, a video about that championship season, which I still have the VHS. Oh, and I think awesome. it's still available somewhere out there. I, you know, I sort of started thinking about storytelling at that point in my life. Um, drafted by the Cardinals and love hate. I loved the sunshine out every day, man. That was something after getting out of Seattle for five years, yeah, it was just yeah. nice. I, I'd open my blinds every morning. Be like, oh, it's sunny again. <laughs> you know, it's really amazing. <laughs> and I, I love the Valley. I, my, my brother and his um, wife live there and I'm over there quite frequently. I, I, I love um, Phoenix, but you know, the, the football side, the NFL side was just difficult. It wasn't what the Cardinals are now. We had, uh, I liked the organization. I really liked Bill Bidwell. He treated me well. He was always nice to my family when they were around. Um, you know, we there was some weird rumor that he they were cheap. And I was like, who's cheap? Like, we had the best facilities. We traveled well. We ate well. I'm oh. like, what, what are people talking about? But we did have some dysfunction in the coaching ranks. Um, that's just hard to overcome if you don't have – a really steady hand at head coach and some just brilliant, you know, uh, forward thinkers as assistants who really connect with their players at that level, you're just not going to win. It just, you're just not. And it also be, you know, it's such a hard job. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I have twisted fingers and I've been through medical exam, you know, you, you get beat up playing that yeah. game. Yeah. And my senior year at Washington, we're 12 and 0 win a national championship. My rookie year with the Cardinals, we're four and 12. So we lose as many games as we won the year before. And I'm starting by the end of the season. And we played in their old, ugly uniforms, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at Sun Devil Stadium. It was a cold, rainy, like December 20th. I don't remember when it was, you know, yeah. sort of late December. And a writer for the Arizona Republic counted the number of people at our game against the four and 12 or whatever Cardinals against the bad Buccaneers. And the Suns played that night. And that's the Charles Barkley, Kevin Johnson era. And he, he estimated they outdrew us by almost a thousand people. And I felt it. So it was a rough transition uh, into the what NFL. What is it like to play one o'clock kickoff in 110 degrees? Oh, as an offensive lineman. Well, it was, it was awful, man. We, you know, that was also one of the things that really drove me nuts about the NFL. Our coaches, right? I played uh, at first under a guy named Joe Bugle. They beat us down physically. I mean, there was no rest from full go. We're battling it out twice a day for two and a half hours. I mean, I was, it's just like, what you're, 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 you know, you're ruining our bodies for the season is what you're doing. It was really sort of archaic. So my rookie year, um, 
I was playing well in camp and got the starting job. We came down from Flagstaff to play the Chicago Bears at, it was, you know, sort of um, early August. So there was some humidity in the Valley, you know, that time of year, 132 degrees on the field. I lost 14 pounds in that game. We had to drink two gallons of water the night before. I mean, they gave us two gallons of water. And and we're, we're, I'll never forget. And and the the quarterbacks had to have me sit on a towel on the sideline because there was so much water. I was just dumping cold water on myself and the ball was just getting soaked. Uh, I mean, it was like we were playing a rain game uh, (laughs) out there, but I'll never forget. And I, I know the PA guy's name. You know, he became a friend. He used to do the Suns as well. Uh, you, you probably remember him. Uh, he might still do it, glasses. Anyway, I, I would hear the PA announcer uh-huh. at Sun Devil Stadium. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, stay hydrated. Water <laughs> is free in today's game. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there, and, I, and I'm pl- I was playing against a guy named Alonzo Spellman, who was just, oh, yeah. just a, I mean, really hard day of work and you know i was just like oh this is not gonna be fun but but come october it's so lovely there you sort of forget you sort of forget about those awful days as a midwesterner i've always said i i can't shovel heat so i would much rather deal with the two months of a little bit of heat and not and not ever have to rake another leaf or shovel another driveway so i I never want to leave. I just absolutely love living here. Uh, well, and that for me, I, and I loved living there as well, but I was just drawn to the beach and the ocean. Yeah. We got to come play in the Rose Bowl. Uh, well, uh, Freedom Bowl first, which was the old bowl in Anaheim and the two Rose Bowls. So we had come to Southern California three years in a row, my sophomore, junior and senior year. And I just fell in love with it, you know? So yeah. I was coming over here right when I retired from the NFL, I spent one year with the Seahawks, which is great. I got to go back to Seattle and we were pretty good and we had good coaches and good teammates. So I had a really nice last year in the NFL. I was thankful that I got one more good, you know, one more season where we were well coached. Everyone yeah. was sort of pointing yeah. in the right direction. People had fun together. We socialized, you know, it, it was really nice. And, and uh, finally played for a guy, Dennis Erickson, who didn't beat us up. It was yeah. the most we, we did, you know, four or five really hard, let's get after it practices a week. And the rest was all run through and conditioning. And uh, we were sharp and good. And we lost our quarterback. If uh, we had a guy, John Freeze, we, we probably, yeah. in a very tough division, probably make the playoffs that year if he doesn't get hurt. Yeah. So I was nice, it was nice to have that. And then I got back to Arizona and I just booked for, for LA mm-hmm. and I've been here ever since. Got here in 99. Oh, oh my goodness. Now, the last time you were, I call it now the old show, you know, used to be a co-host Doug and Wolf in the morning. And now I, I just call it the old show, but the last time we had you on the old show, you were, <laughs> you were struggling a little bit and had decided that yeah. you didn't want to be a color analyst anymore because you thought we're not, do, the, the game isn't doing enough to protect the athlete. And I haven't had a chance to sit down with you on an on-air capacity how are you feeling now? Are we, is it, is it better now or is it still something that's a, a little off priority wise? Well, I think um, the, the, a couple of context here, I've got a lot of distance from that's, that was five years ago. I think. Yeah. 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 Um, and I've changed a lot. Um, I have done more research. I have paid closer attention to safety and health issues 
And I do think football is doing a good job. And I also, the data shows while there is a major issue with early onset dementia and, um, you know, people taking their lives and, and that's very real, that mm-hmm. that statistic is higher than the average person in America mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. those issues with football players. Mm-hmm. Um, football players are overall, though, very healthy. And so, mm-hmm. yes, there is this outlier. And the problem with me is functionally the reason there's an outlier there is the construct of the game. Guys my size and bigger running at each other full speed. And you've done enough radio. You've been with Wolf enough. You've been on a practice field or on a game field. Describe what those collisions are like that happen on every play. A full full speed NFL game from the field is is it's mind-numbing. It's unbelievable as a as a layman to sit and watch how you guys run into each other like that. Right. And so that construct of the game. Mm-hmm. is, you know, that's, that's still the issue. Um, however, we have a lot of sports. You know, I have kids, they skateboard, and yeah, that's yeah. incredibly dangerous. There, yeah. There's as many or more concussions in that. So what I've had to do is, you know, I have kids that I can't put bubbles around. They have to be able to explore this stuff themselves. But then for myself, I've really pivoted, Doug. I've gotten so much more out of football. It is still a part of my life. I'm still in the storytelling business on my podcast. I talk about the game a lot. I'm an expert at it, whether I want to be or not. (laughs) And so what I've done is leaned in. I don't play it anymore. Our our kids don't play it. However, I do watch it occasionally. I follow the stories and I'm certainly as a producer working on projects in and around football because here was the pivot, the big pivot for me. My stance at that time was, it's a little in the weeds, but it was based on the fact that I was covering amateur athletes who were not being compensated for what they were oh, doing. So it was a lot deeper than just the contact. It was, yes. the contact was there, but it was deeper. Yeah. And, and I very carefully, you know, I wasn't, I tried my best not to condemn football. I even made suggestions of how to make it safer because mm-hmm. I think we could incorporate hands and jujitsu and, and wrestling and stuff much more effectively in football because it's just about getting guys to the ground or keeping them away from someone yeah it doesn't have to be blow up hits to do that so i think there's ways to holistically look at the game but my biggest overall issue was i was being paid a princely sum and these kids which has now totally changed because of name image and likeness rights um were complete amateurs and giving of their body mind and soul and everything for a scholarship and a, and a couple of grand a month and so that was really my issue um, as comes to that. But it, it's really, for me, come full circle in a lot of ways since we spoke way back when. Well, I, I got to tell you, even though, because we didn't get into the NIL stuff back in 2017 when you quote unquote left the game, but I, even though I disagreed with you, I respected you so much then. I mean, that's that's an unbelievable job to have made it. You were one of the best color analysts out there. You deserve every accolade you ever received. I loved watching you and Mike Patrick who or whoever your your Yeah, uh, Mike. Was Mike good. was my guy about my last seven yeah, years. Yeah, you guys amazing. worked together for a long time. You were really good at your job. And anybody who walks away for a principled reason, I just have so much respect in our country for people that 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 do that. And then it's cool that you've, you know, kind of come back. The NIL thing, I, I switched on that topic, but not for a 
respectful reason, to be quite honest. It's if we were still in a normal area, I would prefer that players aren't paid in college. But once, maybe over the course of the last 15 years, when it just got so astronomical of how the industry abused itself, then it's like, okay, this is ridiculous. When you're paying $8 million or eight-figure coaches, when you have an entire industry of people based on child labor, then it became to me, you know what, this is outrageous. They should get something. But before it, when it was really, hey, you have the opportunity to better yourself with a college education and we're not going to live off of you, I I kind of felt like this is worth it. You know, it, it should be. If you don't like it, you know, go get a job somewhere else or wait till you can be pro, you know, whatever you wanted. I thought it was a fair trade, but about 15 or 18 years ago, I switched only because it's just gotten ridiculous how much money is in the game and how much was not going to kids. And I, but I think it's working. I think the new system is reasonably working because if we're going to allow kids at 18 years old to fight wars for us and vote for our leaders, should we not allow them to transfer a school, have the transfer portal, allow yourself to try to make some money selling pizzas you know, what's funny is selling pizzas in our era was you and I went and delivered pizzas delivered them. Yep. and in, in this and era, it would be, I'm, I, yeah, I'm doing a YouTube video for the pizza place that me and the offensive line go to eat after yeah. <laughs> Thursday yeah. practice. That's a, a exactly. terrific. And, and, and the, um, uh, the dollars per hour is significantly higher yes. <laughs> in the second. Yes. That's uh, exactly. So you know, tell me more about Long Beach and tell me about California and tell me about becoming an, a, an Academy Award winning film producer. That was surreal. Um, that was what, you know, that night being, uh, you know, that was a movie, Doug, that was a football movie that I didn't want to do Wow. because I did football all year for ESPN. And at that point, as a filmmaker, I'd done the video about our national championship team. I produced it and helped write it and did the voiceover for that back in like 91, 92. But then the next thing I worked on was not till 2005. And it was about an old glam punk rock band called the New York Dolls. So the first documentary I produced was, you know, couldn't have been as, you know, farther away from American football uh, is this glam punk rock band from, from New York. And so that was sort of where my path was going. And uh, a guy named Seth Gordon, uh, who's a longtime partner and a, a really successful director and producer out here. Uh, and we were, our careers were just getting started as producers and he is a director. And he called me and he said, hey, I've got these young filmmakers. They've already made a film um, and it's football. And I was like, ah, dude, I, I, all right, let's go meet with them. But I, I got to tell you, Seth, and he's like, I know, I know you don't want to do football. You know, like he knew I didn't want that. And then I met um, uh, Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin and Rich Middlemas, who was the, the lead producer on it. And they were just great guys. They'd already made a film. It was good. So we knew they could make it. And, and they were making a trip to Memphis, Tennessee, which is where they filmed at the high school. And about a week later, they came back and they put together this footage and it just melted your heart, man. I mean, it was oh, just wow. these kids just don't have a freaking chance if this football program didn't exist. They just don't have a chance. So, you know, I was like, okay, 
because they needed a football. They needed, you know, I spent a lot of time in the edit room on that film because we really had to nail the football and, and the pacing of it. And they, and they did. They're really fantastic filmmakers. And so that was a film I didn't really want to work on. And then we get shortlisted, then it gets nominated and we're sitting there and the, na- the, the film gets called as a winner. And I just blacked out. I don't remember going up to the stage. I got on the stage. I got on the stage and the, the, the two directors and, and Rich, the producer who got, they were the trophy winners. We're the uh, schmoes behind them. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we come up to on stage, now I've done live TV my whole life. I just sort of froze and just stopped. And right away, my phone started buzzing with texts right away as I'm standing there. I mean, it won't stop in my pocket. And that sort of wakes me up out of my haze. Once we get off stage, the very first text I got was from a guy named Patrick McManus, who is a longtime friend and a great live TV director, a guy I've worked with a lot and just a terrific guy. And it was a text from Patrick that said, move left, you're off camera. (laughs) (laughs) Once a director, always a director. <laughs> that was the first text I got. But that at, at that until that moment, filmmaking was a hobby. The the yeah. broadcasting was my real focus. I worked really hard on my broadcast. I really studied and and uh, you know spent it. You know the whole year I was sort of working at it. And and I took the weeks during the season were a lot of work. I put in a lot of effort, time yeah. to get those broadcasts right. So, but that's but then you sort of get good at that and I don't need as much time. And that's about when we won uh, undefeated won the Oscar. And then it was like the, the career sort of flipped where, where mm-hmm. filmmaking was the side hustle. Then working at ESPN became the day job. It, you know, it was like being a waiter while you're trying to be an actor uh, and, and rightfully so. I mean, that was a, a really cool moment. Well, I, I know nothing about filmmaking, but now that you know so much about both, I do know that in the movie Hoosiers, only one of the basketball players for Hickory High was an actor. They mm. were basketball players taught to act. Mm. And in the movie Miracle, same thing. They, yeah. they, they were hockey players taught to act. So I ask you if whatever you would do next that is involving sports, would you want the athlete taught to act? Or would you want the actor that you're trying to film to look like an athlete? You have to, if you're making a sports film, the majority of the people doing the sport have to be real athletes. Okay. That, that being said, there are a lot of actors who are terrific athletes and may have okay. played basketball, but then could learn how to throw a football credibly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is no sports movie that I've ever watched. And, you know, you're talking about not documentary, you're talking, you know, scripted with actors. Um, And I have a couple of projects in development like that uh, based on true stories um, that you absolutely can't get that wrong. If for the biggest reason is anyone who's played that sport or anyone who's watched that sport a lot is you're going to, they're going to check out and it's going to, yeah, you can't suspend your disbelief when, somebody's golf swing looks like an amateur and he's trying to win a major. It's so funny you say that because I am a baseball nut. Okay. I, I love the game so much. I took my wife to Cooperstown, New York on our honeymoon just to let her know this is, this is my game. And so when I'm watching field of dreams, that's all real. 
That is a documentary. Field of Dreams really happened. Ghosts really walked out of corn and they played in an Iowa farm and then disappeared when they walked out of the farm. And yet at the end of the movie, when Kevin Costner's dad is there at home plate, when they have a catch, the first time he throws the baseball, I say, Every, all, of, all of pretend has just been suspended. That guy can't throw. This yeah. movie's not fake. It still drives me crazy when I watch him throw baseball. And yet I'm so emotionally invested in the film all the way through. Yeah, you can't. You, and you mentioned Miracle's one of my favorite movies of all time, sports or okay. not. I just I okay. think that that movie. And have you ever studied or learned about Herb Brooks, the coach? I uh, Yes, but whatever you're about to say, I want to hear it because I want to learn more. Well, no, Kurt Russell in Miracle becomes that guy. It's freaky how good Kurt Russell is in that movie. So it was not only the players, but Kurt Russell, you know, really nailed a a kind of prickly hard guy to get, you know. And and it's interesting because now the NHL not sending pros over to China. Uh, We're back to that 1980 college kids and amateur athletes. So I want to invite you on my soapbox. I have been on this soapbox for years because I I have two daughters and I was their soccer coach and the younger one, I was her club coach. And just seeing the the parents that think their 12-year-old has a chance to get a scholarship in the middle of a soccer game at some tournament or something just drove me absolutely crazy. And I would, you know, get on parents for – I'm the coach – scolding them to have their kids play other sports. My rule was I get Tuesdays. I don't want to hear your excuse. Your kid needs to learn priorities, needs to learn how to handle homework. They come to practice right here on Tuesdays. That's it. Now we had practice three times a week, but any other time I was like, Hey, you know, I want you to come. It's important, but go play other sports, go do other things. And it is in a time. I'm sure it's the same in Southern California, but in Phoenix, when you have great weather, there are parents that legitimately think you need to play for 52 weeks mm-hmm. in order to get yourself ready for college. Like you'll never be discovered. And you're the one that said you didn't really get into football until your freshman year and you were able to make a career out of it. it please tell me you're with me that we've got to get kids involved in multiple sports, let them have fun and understand if you're an athlete, we have a lot of scouts in the world who will find you. It'll be okay. You don't have to be in a hurry. There's a couple levels of agreement here. And also just us as a society, I think, starting to, to think through some priorities. Yes. Um, the number one is there is no statistics. There is nothing that backs that if you start early in a sport, you do all this training, you spend all this time, you do all these travel you, you know, you do anything that there is this windfall payoff for that kid in the future. As a matter of fact, what, we, what a lot of people are seeing is a lot of kids who go on that track get so burnt out that they quit the sport before it matters for them to get a scholarship or go to the college of their dreams. Yes. But the ones who make it through don't go to their college of the dreams, their dreams. They go to a college that takes them so that they can play their sport. And a lot of those kids end up at schools that don't fit them, don't have the majors they want. So there's this track idea that there's some magical way to get to Stanford on a basketball scholarship. They give three of those away a year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. At places like that. (laughs) Below that, 
you're kind of scrapping along and college sports is a grind. It does not add much to your life as a kid from 19 to 23. If you're playing on a crappy baseball team at a school, you shouldn't be at. Yeah. There's just not, there's no path that goes that. So what, what I would say is not only do we need to shrink the amount of time and effort and all that, that we're forcing these kids to do that, but also make it more diverse. I mean, that's one of the choices we make. We do two seasons a year. We do fall and spring. We do not do this winter league and we get emails for the summer thing because I want to take the guy surfing. I want to mm-hmm. um, uh, go back East and see my family. I want to ha- give them a diverse edu- you know, experience in life yeah. because sports are so limiting as a career path. They just are. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, you know, sort of thinking, you know, what's this person going to do with their life? And it's such a hyper focus on being a professional athlete or whatever, you know, that that's like saying they're going to go be a Hollywood actor like that. That's the narrow path you're talking about. Um, the, the other piece is what we're now seeing in a lot of data and I'm coaching uh, my son's basketball team and I'm, I'm practicing some of this stuff with my team. Players and athletes improve faster, get better with less coaching. Wow, is that fascinating? The, we have gotten to a place where as a coach, you have to be yelling and screaming and on them and do this and do that and do that, where they never get to fully express themselves and learn how to do it themselves. There's a really amazing guy in Seattle who's built this uh, baseball training device that is all based on just the speed of your arm, the speed of your bat. It measures everything. And what they yeah. do is they just have the guy go in there and start throwing pitches. He comes over and looks at the screen. And they're like, what if you could make your forearm go faster before release? And guess what the guy does on the next pitch? He makes his forearm go faster. The ball goes three miles an hour faster out of his hand. Yeah. And it's all just a feedback loop. It's not, I mean, I hear these baseball coaches with keep your arm up. And I almost say like, Dude, the first thing you do is drop your elbow to swing. Like yeah, that yeah. is old school elbow. You keep your elbow. No, yeah. <laughs> you got to get that elbow on the hip so you can yeah. roll through the through the swing. So we've overthought so much about how we coach. We got to just start letting the creativity and also let these. You know, they they have such great feel of their bodies. They don't have all the stuff we have in the way where we're worried about this or worried about. They can really be in the moment to figure that stuff out. And then the third piece that's really important. And again, supported by some studies, kids begin to hate sports as soon as the adults start taking it seriously. Amen. Amen. And that you see immediately, you know, that that sort of, you know, uh, parent who's, you know, hovering over and, oh, they're going to play this and they're going to play that. You can see the kid just like cringing, like, can I just go play Roblox or something yeah, like yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. I want to go hang with my friends. It's a Saturday, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so those are some things to, as we, as a society, and then here's the final piece. And I've talked about this to NFL scouts, NFL players, NFL coaches, guys around the NBA guys, a buddy of mine's a strength coach in major league baseball. Oh, okay. If you took a hundred athletes age 17 to 20 from you know, all walks of life. And you did a bunch of drills with real coaches and real scouts for a day, day and a half. And like, Hey, you know what, why don't you go over there and play a little basketball and just literally suss it out. 
there would be four or five people in that group of 100 where those high-level scouts and coaches would say, you know what, you have a chance, so we're going to take you and train you. The rest of you could go home. Wow. Because it is, and you mentioned it earlier, it's hard to comprehend how big, physical, strong, and fast people are at the highest level of sports. Yes. It blows your mind. They are different <laughs> than... Yeah. Than many of the, and I don't mean different or better, I don't mean better, just physically that much different, where no matter how much you trained at hitting a curveball when you were 12, yeah, if you can't crank that, cur- that curveball 420 feet 30 times a year against the best pitchers going, yeah. it won't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, as soon as I say this question, who's the name that pops into your head first? the coach in your life who had the biggest influence off the field taught you the most off the field. Hmm. I would have to say, and there's been a, there's been a few luckily, but I think the key one was Don James, my head coach at Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He wasn't as much hands on with us as players because he was the head coach, Mm -hmm. but he built a complete program for us off the field where we were one of the first schools with full academic services and fully required uh, for at least your first year study hall every single day. And we had a full staff that was there to help us. And it was for the whole athletic department, but it was, I think it was funded by football to start. So that was one of the first things that he did um, because University of Washington is a, it's a competitive school and, and, you know, let's get these kids started. The other thing he did was, we were really challenged to be involved. We had, you know, we, we really had to be involved in school and all that, but he constantly had people from the community and from the professional and nonprofit and all these communities come in and speak to the team about what they did, about who they were. They, you know, like the FBI would come in and tell us about how we could get set up for point shaving deals. Like, Hey, and they tell us about real cases. Like, Hey, there was a guy a few years ago, we found out in Portland who was working, blah, blah, blah. And so, and then, do you know how many guys in that room ended up becoming law enforcement people? Because they'd also give their cards out. And okay. so it became almost a job fair. Yeah. And we were the Huskies and we were a big deal and Don James was a big deal. So he could get the best people in town or in the region to come in. And so all throughout my five years, there was just this constant inflow of really smart, really influential, really good people into our program usually there for a specific purpose and also to meet them and network. And so um, I I would say, you know, not as much hands-on. I had guys that would meet with me and sort of encourage me, but just from a program standpoint and, you know, anybody who follows college football knows the name Nick Saban, Nick Saban, Don James is the reason Nick Saban's a coach. and, And Nick talks all the time about what he learned under Don as a player and a coach at Kent State. So uh, Don was really, it was a real deal. It was great. I, I never met Don, but as I spent three years in Kansas City as a talk show host, and that was the time Gary Pinkle was at Mizzou. Yeah. And so there, it's, the, it's the same way hearing him. He, he talked about Don James all the time. Yeah. Well, well, Gary was at Washington when I was there. He left after my junior year to take the job at Toledo before Missouri. Yeah. And what coach James did for every coach who left and, and Gary showed it to me, he gave him the program notebook, which was a literal day to day minute detail of what had to get done every day to run the program. Oh my gosh. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. 
Yeah. So what are you working on now? What's uh, what's your next project? I've got uh, a few things I'm working on in the documentary field. I think we're going to go out and maybe raise a little money to do some independent documentaries. I'm getting a little tired of doing one at one at a time. <laughs> you got to sort of stack a lot together. Um, you know, you don't get into making documentary films to get rich. Yeah. Um, I mean, you you can, but that's not how it you know works. So, um, probably looking to get a little more formal with my business with some investment, some capital. Um, instead of having to hustle at each time. And then, um, you know, I've got the podcast that, you know, I mean, I'm in the same space you are. I'm doing it because I wanted to be back out there and I wanted to do a show I liked because I listen yeah. to podcasts, you know, yeah. uh, obviously you're not in it to make money there, but I really enjoy it. Um, and then I'm, I'm definitely going to get back into sort of some voiceover, maybe some broadcast work. That was other the other part of getting a podcast going is I'd like to kickstart a little of that that I had before I left ESPN, not as an announcer for games, but frankly, voiceover for commercials or shows or, you know, okay. those types of things. And then the other piece is getting into series and, and some scripted work. So I've got a few projects. I mentioned one, it's actually a baseball story. You would love it. Oh, can't, can't tell you what it is because we don't have the rights yet, but that's sort of the <laughs> slate right now. And I just had two films come out in December. One is called by Rooker left hook, the story of chess boxing. Have you ever heard of the sport of chess I've boxing? I've heard of chess boxing. Yeah, check out our movie. It's <laughs> yeah, on it iTunes. like the strangest thing I've ever the movie, seen. Yeah, the movie's great. The filmmaker did a great job. So it's called By Rook or Left Hook, The Story of Chess Boxing. Okay, so, okay. And then the other film that came out completely different than chess boxing is called Jerry's Last Mission. And it's a documentary about the guy who flew the last combat mission over Japan in World War II. Oh, wow. Came home had a really dark life and, you know, PTSD, and then was confronted again. His son, youngest son, moved to Japan. And in 1982, uh, he married the daughter of a kamikaze pilot. Oh, my goodness. It's an amazing story. So that's Jerry's last mission. Oh, and that's my on. Goodness. Yeah, that one, that, that's a really special film yeah. and special story. So that's, that's on uh, Apple. You can uh, rent or buy it on Apple. I was, uh, even though, you know, I was all in, I wanted to be a major league baseball play-by-play guy at, at one point. Well, I still do actually, but it's kind of hard when you're now my age and you haven't started it yet, but I was also, also a history minor. I was the type of kid that when I said, Hey dad, can I go out? Dad would ask me a history question. And if I didn't know it, I'd have to go pull out the Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia and look it up. And if I, and I, I couldn't go out until I got the answer right. And then once I knew it, like I'm the, who know I'm the guy that knows the vice president is named Alexander Stevens of the Confederacy. Who knows that? But it, my dad made me look it up. He would just ask obscure questions that I had to know to learn history. So then it became a simple thing to become a history minor. So anything military or anything children, because I had a, my 22-year-old daughter was only a pound when she was born. Mm. So, so anything military or anything kids, I am like all in. So the kamikaze story. Yeah, please check. I, 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 I mean, yeah. you know, you know, I've been at this for a while. The feedback I got from my colleagues, because when we get close to a film being done, we'll just send it out to 15 or 20 of our colleagues and say, hey, yeah. Tell us what you think, you know, we can make adjustments still. Uh, and the feedback was just, my one buddy was like, this is the best film you've ever made. And wow, you know, that's cool. that's yeah, cool. we, we have an Oscar, but Jerry's last mission is it'll blow you away. Doug. It's, it's quite an extraordinary story. Jerry Yellen, uh, captain Jerry Yellen is a, is a 
really amazing, amazing story who, you know, you've seen veterans movies oh. and, and we, we actually shared it with some veterans groups and they were blown away. And, and one young, like 28 year old that said veterans need to see this movie because it has a happy ending. We have yeah. got to have some stories with happy endings, and, and you you won't believe the end of Jerry's life, how brilliant it was. Oh, my gosh. You got me. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Great. We'll check it out. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you should check it out, too. Make sure to put the tissue box next to you on the couch, though. You'll need it. You can check out Doug's new show, Doug Franz Unplugged, wherever you find your podcast, and follow them on Twitter, at Unplugged Doug. Thanks, Doug. Good to reconnect. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. And you can follow the show on social media, Twitter at Let's Huddle With, Facebook, Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham, and Instagram, Let's underscore Huddle, underscore With, underscore It. If you want to come right to the source, the show's webpage, go to Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com. Scroll through their impressive lineup, then search up Let's Huddle to get to the show's homepage. Reach out, let us know what you think, any corrections, topics, or people you'd like to hear about or from. Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham is a production of True Stories Incorporated and is edited by Ryan Lindsay of Fushaw Media. This episode was produced by Ryan, Doug Franz, and myself. The Believe team on the Let's Huddle beat, producers Alex Tosopoulos, Joe DeLeon, Josh Fisher, audio engineer Carter, Connor Haynes, and Cam Rogers, who help out with the marketing. My first contact with Team Believe, Bron Husenstam, the chief exec. Thanks, everyone, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.